In the last episode, I spent a lot of time concentrating on why we need to have this discussion. And I also talked from my own personal experience being the instructor of this class over over a decade, the observations that I've made uh, from some of the assignments that I've given. In this particular episode, what I want to do is continue to establish a bit more groundwork and then we're going to spend the two episodes after that talking about the actual history in, again, pretty broad terms, but uh, it should be constructed. These episodes should be constructed in such a way that you'll have the background you need in order to be able to really follow and understand this conversation. Again, my goal in doing this is not to have you to just blindly agree with me. Um, in fact, I imagine again at this point we've reached maybe a juncture in the semester where you're listening and you think, oh, I don't agree with that. And I, I always welcome that. And the reason is, is because I don't think I have all the answers. I had said that last time, but I do think that I have the information you need to frame the question that you should be asking in the right way. And that's what that last episode was about. And that's what this one is certainly about as well. Let's get started. So let's start with uh, a little bit of a tongue in cheek thing here, but I think it might be one of the most controversial things I say in this episode. I think people are basically good. And again, I think some people might be listening right now and saying, no, that's not true. But I would like to think that people are basically good if given the chance. What I think happens is that people are misled by ideas or ideals or philosophies. And I'll give a quick example of that to sort of justify that position. Um, I don't think that all Germans prior to World War II or just prior to World War II were evil. I think that they were normal human beings, just like you know you and me and everybody else on the planet, and that they were misled by certain philosophies and political ideologies that were given to them. So I don't think that uh, people are inherently evil. I think that, again, they just get misled. Um, I think that, and let me, let me coach this one more way as well. I think that some people are evil but I don't think that all people, generally speaking, are evil. Okay, with that in mind, that's where I want to begin the discussion inside of this particular episode. I want to concentrate in this episode on the philosophies and ideologies that guided race um, really throughout the entire time we're going to be talking about it. I mentioned some of those last time. I, for example, I talked about the idea of the other because that was one of the things that Randall Keenan had discussed inside of his essay. And I think that that's very useful as a way to, again, frame the reactions that white people had um, during the civil rights movement. But for purposes, again, of this episode, I'm gonna telescope out a little bit more and I'm gonna look at those broad ideologies um, with no particular rhyme or reason. I'm just gonna kind of walk through them step by step by step. Now I'm gonna start with uh, the one that we already covered and the one that I already mentioned. And that is, again, the idea of the other. And I'm going to expand on that one just slightly. And I'm going to start here, actually, just because it's the, the one that we've already discussed. And I think it's the easiest one that we can build on. Um, this one is not necessarily a straightforward ideology that was used, uh, but it is certainly a philosophy that emerged really out of Europe um, from someone named George Heigl. And George Heigl wrote a, um, an essay called The Master-Slave Dialect. And this is not at all what it sounds like. And he just used... I would say um, these terms in, an, in a way that was unfortunate and tone deaf to history. But the the uh, properties of this essay, I think, can be used to explain and think about the American South. And it's, again, really what I've already sort of talked about. 
he essentially said that when two individuals meet, that there is an immediate competition between the two and that one person will emerge the victor and the other person will uh, emerge as the, the person subsumed to that. And so he called the first one the master and the second one the slave. What he means by this is that the, the person that is in charge in this relationship bosses the other person around and then draws their role from bossing that person around. And the person being bossed around also draws a sense of their identity and role from that as well. However, what he argued ends up happening is that in the end, the person that's bossing the other around comes to rely on that person. And so the person who's being bossed around comes to have a certain kind of power over the other one. Now, again, this is that concept of the other. Um, it is the concept of the other explained and unpacked a bit more. But I think it gives us some food for thought, because I think if we uh, if we interpret the history of race in the American South in this particular way, we can see where that dynamic emerges and where the um, the different groups end up being bound in this terrible, awful dance of identity and power and uh, you know, subsuming individuals and subjugating individuals. And uh, that's, again, one of the things that we can consider as we move forward into the actual history itself. Now, to be fair, George Heigl also um, made many arguments about history and the purpose of history and and things of that nature. I'm not going to get into those here. And I, if you're familiar with his work, uh, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, but his work is largely discredited. Yes, I, I completely agree. It has been uh, turned aside. There doesn't seem to be a march of history or progress to history. But I still think that we can take some of that framework and use the the um, the ideas inside that framework to think about the American South in ways that could be useful for purposes of discussion. So I wanted to start there. And that brings me to the next uh, aspect that I wanted to discuss. And I'm going to make this one the next one because I think it's also fairly simple and straightforward. Uh, the, the final one is going to be very in-depth, and that's why I want to put it at the end. This one would be the way in which science conceives of race. And so if you've ever watched a TV show like Bones or you've read a book of that sort, uh, I think it was Kathy Reichs that wrote those books originally. So if you've ever read those books or seen a TV show like that or you know a movie, you've probably seen somebody at some point pick up a skull or a bone and examine it carefully, you know, far more carefully and quickly than they should maybe be able to. And uh, eventually say something like, this is a 32-year-old white woman, or this is a 54-year-old black man. And there's an actual science to that. That's the reason that that can happen. There are general trends and characteristics inside the anatomy of different uh, groups of people. And this is because evolution has affected them in different ways, depending on where they are in the world. Uh, when populations become isolated from each other, they they have uh, different characteristics emerge. So those characteristics are generally seen to be you know, things like the fusing of the skull or the shape of the skull or the shape of the eye sockets or the shape of you know the jawbone, uh, the general trends that are used. Now, there are exceptions, of course, in every single category. But again, those are the sort of general things that uh, detectives are using on those types of TV shows. In the background of that, as, a, as an extension of this, there is a tendency for some people to hear that type of information and think, oh, that means that, uh, that such divergence has happened that uh, you know one group must have evolved better or something than other groups. And let me go ahead and put that completely to rest. That is absolutely false, absolutely unequivocally false. 
yes, there are differences that have emerged. For I mean, just to take another quick example, uh, people of Asian descent tend to be lactose intolerant. The reason is is because there was a, um, a, a a mutation that occurred in Europe that allowed people to drink milk into you know uh, past youth, I should say. And uh, that mutation didn't quite make it into Asia. So that's why these people tend to uh, not uh, be able to drink milk, uh, the, the people from that particular lineage. Another great example is uh, Africans. Africans have a tendency towards sickle cell anemia more than other groups. Again, the reason is, is because there's a mutation that occurred that gave them the benefit of being more resistant to malaria. Unfortunately, on the exact same gene, uh, there was a tendency to be more susceptible to sickle cell anemia. That uh, tendency did not you know, go into Europeans. And so those, those people in that particular case were not allowed to, uh, to have the resistance to malaria, nor were they uh, more susceptible to sickle cell anemia. So you can see that each group, yes, has uh, different traits that have emerged, but the general trend is that human beings are the same across all categories. They have, again, just minor susceptibilities here and minor susceptibilities there. Let's also talk about the other way that science might look at uh, race. And in, in this particular case, I would be referencing, you know, what we today think of as race, which uh, is handed to us through something like skin color, which I'm also going to discuss in just a second. But let's, uh, let's think about that again from a science perspective. Where do we tend to see white people? Uh, uh, not near the equator. Where do we tend to see black people near the equator? Why is that the case? Well, if you think about it for you know just a handful of minutes, the answer quickly emerges. We need sunlight. You've, if you've ever heard of the, um, the seasonal affective disorder, SAD, that comes from not going outside and not getting enough sunlight. How do you get more sunlight? Well, you know, through an adaptation of your skin that allows you to, uh, to utilize it uh, more efficiently. When do you need more sunlight? When you're away from the sunlight. Where does the sunlight generally trend and occur? Toward the equator. So again, if you think about it for more than a half a second, uh, you can see that this is one of the reasons that evolution triggered this particular adaptation. Uh, and it is because it depends on where you are in the world. If you need more sunlight, your skin has adapted to that. You would be further away from the equator. If you need uh, less sunlight because you're getting a bunch of it already because you're near the equator, your skin adapted to that as well. And that's the way, generally speaking, again, science would see it. Now, I'm going to put one final thing on this as a final thought. Um, again, I, I tend to think of people as being good. And so scientists, generally speaking, generally speaking, set out to explain the world. And what they do is they try to classify and divide it. I'm thinking of like Carolus Linnaeus, for example, who wanted to just you know divide and classify everything in all of reality. Uh, but there are others as well. And um, you know, Watson and Crick are an unfortunate yet um, apt example in this particular case. These are the individuals who are responsible for discovering DNA. But if you investigate you know, the background of somebody like James Watson, you can see that uh, scientists are people too, and that they have uh, unfortunate biases and that sometimes they bring these to science. Generally speaking, again, science has sought to classify, but that doesn't mean that every single person that has ever done science has been um, uh, neutral in that particular approach. So it's kind of a mixed bag in this case. Science you know, explains, it observes, it uh, pulls in characteristics and, and then uh, gives explanations for those characteristics based on what uh, its theories of things like evolution would be. But on the flip side of that, again, scientists are people too, and some of them have uh, 
have managed to bring in malicious intent to that activity. So this is a good time to pause just for a second and consider what actually is race. Uh, you know, we've been talking so much about it. We've talked about the influence of it. We've talked about why um, it exists. We've talked about how it influences certain groups and how certain groups uh, see it. But this is, again, that opportunity to pause and actually consider what it is. Now, I know that you might think, well, it's, it's very obvious. I even referenced that just a second ago. I mean, today we tend to think in terms of, you know, black, white, um, and so forth and so on. Uh, but if we go back in history and we look at the history of the human race and the way in which this concept has emerged, this is fairly a recent concept. Um, if we go back to prior to something like the 15th century, for example, there's there's no real sense of that. There's no real sense of, you know, people being divided along color lines or anything of that nature. It is a, again, fairly recent invention in order for people to divide different groups and different individuals in such a way that they could use that to their advantage. I don't know how else to put it. And we're going to see that uh, emerge in just a second with some of the philosophies that we're going to look at. But prior to that, race was something like just, you know, the general trend. Uh, so I'm, my name is, again, John Bowman, and people would say, oh, that's the race of Bowmans. Um, you know, this is their general family trend that they they have uh, blondish looking hair, dark you know, blonde hair, and uh, that they behave in XYZ way. Um, <laughs> not to drag my family into it too much, but that they have a bit of a temper at times um, that, that <laughs> runs in the family in the background. But that would be how they would go about describing the race of Bowmans. And then we get to a point where, again, people are traveling more, we get to the age of exploration. And when we get to the age of exploration, we can see that people begin to ascribe those characteristics uh, along the color line in order to, uh, to be able to map some of those ideologies and philosophies onto the situation. Okay, so why in the world would people do that? Why would they begin to map it in this way? This is very tightly bound to the last thing that I want to make sure that I discuss here because it, it brings us up to the present. If we're dividing along um, li you know, lines associated with color, then we get to a point where those, those lines are described in terms of religion. And that's, again, the final thing I want to be able to concentrate on here. And in order to get to that aspect, we have to first jump all the way back to the medieval period, which again gets back to about the 15th century, like I mentioned just a second ago. And so during the medieval period, you had what was called the great chain of being. And if you haven't seen it in slides inside this class, or if you're just listening to the podcast at random, I would say just you know pause here and go look up an image of the great chain of being. This is a chain that's mentioned, and I'm thinking of Alexander Pope's poem, um, essay on man, because he, he makes some reference to it in there, but it is a, a fairly popularized notion during this time. And it essentially argues that at the very top of the chain, you have God. And at the very bottom of the chain, you have the devil. And in between is everything else in life. So generally speaking, you would see something like at the top of the chain, God, then you get the angels and saints and people, and then birds of the air, uh, beast of the soil, fishes of the sea, and then you start to dig under that, and you get into you know, demons and devils, and then you get into Satan himself down at the very bottom. And you know you could think of this in terms of uh, Dante's Divine Comedy as well. 
All right, that gives you a, an image of how they saw reality. Reality was mapped over this giant, invisible, great chain of being. If you're thinking about it just for a second, or if you pause and think about it for a second, think about how that puts everything into a hierarchy. So those things that are at the top of the chain tend to um, have power over the things underneath them on the chain. If we take religion into account, and if this is, um, this is to do with Christianity, if you're a Christian, you see yourself as higher on the chain because you see yourself as closer to God. Then you start to take into account all the other people that you meet in the world. And if those people don't know the same God that you do, then you think they must be lower down on the chain. The logic here is that according to Genesis, God put human beings in charge of the animals. And so for those people who lived during this particular time period, that's how they would have understood the world. And that's the sort of philosophy that they would have used as they encountered other people. Now, I, I'm saying that because I, I want to drive home to you that, yes, the Christian religion was used in this particular way to justify the mistreatment of uh, individuals from other groups, from places like Africa. It was used because that is specifically what I just explained a second ago. That was specifically the philosophy that they employed to, uh, to explain to themselves their own behavior. I started this entire episode saying that, you know, I think that people are basically good and that they're misled by ideologies or philosophies. And it is not me. I am not sitting here right now saying uh, Christianity did this. I'm saying that this interpretation of those passages and uh, this particular you know, idea of theology was used in this particular way. So, I, you know, I, I want to start here because, again, that's how we start to map it into ideas of black and white because it, you know once you get to that idea then you get to the idea of okay well these people are from a different region and they they are a different color than me therefore it's not just a matter of you know being christian or not christian now it's a matter of black and white and that's how we begin to emerge into you know issues and, and discussions of black and white and that that sort of hierarchy that has been handed down to us in the present. It goes all the way back to that. And then it, it again is mapped up um, through the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, even 20th centuries and handed to us from this, this invisible you know, chain of the past. Now, how does this manifest into actual practice? Well, one of the ways that we could look at that is to look at some of the old laws. For example, very early on, uh, as Africans were being brought into the English colonies, if an African declared that that person, you know, was a, a Christian, that that person could become freed, uh, that this was a, an easy way for them to gain their freedom. And there was some measure of debate about that. And eventually that loophole was closed. It didn't matter if they converted to Christianity or not. Uh, they, they were no longer deemed uh, fit to be freed just for that particular reason. Uh, another way that it manifested is, again, in the, the treatment of individuals and the ways that those philosophies were also used to control those individuals. So, I, you know, I keep leaning into Frederick Douglass here, but that's because Frederick Douglass does such an excellent job of articulating this. If you don't believe me, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, oh, I can't possibly be true, that that's a lie. I would encourage you to go to the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass and go to the very end of the book because he discusses it at length. Um, he is very careful to say what I'm attempting to say here as well, that he doesn't uh, hold Christianity accountable for that. That is not at all what I'm doing either. 
but that he does hold the particular version of Christianity that he himself was exposed to responsible for his own treatment. And again, he goes on at length about it, but in essence, again, it was used to teach you know slaves things like the meek will inherit the earth, and so therefore, um, look at you, you're you're definitely the meek. So you know you see your shouldn't you see yourself in terms of the Israelites? And that, that's a really kind of twisted way of trying to get slaves to see their their place in the world um, and an ugly, really, I mean, looking at it in retrospect, unjustifiable way. But again, that is the way in which it would manifest. Um, we could also see it, you know, again, in the way in which human beings, what, you know, white human beings would treat um, their slaves. And that is to say that, again, going into Frederick Douglass and a little bit with Harriet Jacobs as well, that these individuals would um, not treat them very well. I, Frederick Douglass actually said at one point, I wish that my master had not converted to uh, Christianity because I liked him. I liked the way he treated me better before. Um, this almost seems to indicate that the, the master's conscience was eased somewhat by the philosophies that he had been exposed to, you know, and had come to accept as a Christian in that particular case. So I, again, I, I point this out, not because I, you know, I'm blaming any, any group or anything like that, but because I, I'm trying to show what I said at the very start, that I think that people are basically good, but that they can be misled by particular ideas. And this is one of the ideas that um, at that time was used to um, soothe the conscience of people who were doing things that they need, knew to be inhumane and inhuman and uh, awful, just awful. I would not be doing this subject the justice that it deserves if I just left it right there. I've concentrated on, you know, the philosophies and, and whatnot that were used in order to uh, let people soothe their own consciences. Uh, but on the flip side of that, they were genuinely good people. And they were, uh, they, they sought to be good to the, the people that they were in charge of. And they would seek to be good to those people through the exact same philosophies. And in this particular case, I'm thinking of the sort of approach that some white individuals took, which was to say that they felt a paternalistic um, care for those in their charge. Now, let me be clear here too. I'm not at all excusing or justifying this because they are still they still own human beings, which is that's wrong. What I am saying though is that we we can't just paint in one broad brushstroke here. We can't just say, oh, this is what every single slaveholder was doing at the time. Uh, we we have to be fair in our examination, and that is to say, let's look at the ways that people were treated in the worst possible ways, and let's look at the the other side of it as well. Because I, again, I don't want to just point to these philosophies and say, well, oh, the philosophies were just used in this really awful way. They weren't. Sometimes they were used in a way that was more positive um, and reassuring and uh, caring than in the other cases. So don't don't listen to this episode and think. Well, he's just described the way that everything always was. Instead, my hope is that you listen to it and think, okay, this is sort of like, well, actually, a perfect analogy. This is sort of like describing behavior in a parking lot, right? If you have people driving cars around a parking lot and you stand out there for a while and watch, some people are jerks and they're just going to pull right into a parking spot and they don't care who's waiting on it or who's trying to save it. They just don't care. They're going to take the parking spot because that's what they want. They're not going to stop and let people walk across the road. They're not nice drivers, period. On the other hand, you have other individuals who go to great lengths 
to accommodate those around them, the people that they don't even know. If they, uh, for example, see that the parking lot is crowded, they'll just go park at the end and then walk in. If they see that there's somebody who looks like they're struggling because they're an older person, they will not take the spot closest to the door. Instead, again, they'll go park somewhere further away. I mean, that's just the trend of human nature manifested in one particular activity. And the same could be said here. And I just want to draw attention to that because I think it is wrong to say that everything happened in one particular way. Yes, we need to talk about the awful things, but we also need to acknowledge that, um, that there is that range inside of this discussion because failure to recognize that range, failure to recognize that, again, these are all human beings, some good, some bad, some misled, some you know, striving against that system. Um, I don't think that we're really seeing humanity manifested inside of this, this awful, awful history that we have. And that brings me to the end of this episode. I keep saying that awful, awful history. And, you know, again, some people might be listening and some people might be thinking, oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, I've, I've heard some stuff. It wasn't that bad. I'm going to disagree. And I, I hope you'll stick with me through the next two episodes, because if you do disagree that it was awful, awful history, um, you, you really need to hear the next two episodes. We're going to uh, start by talking our way uh, through race uh, and the American South up until about the American Civil War. Then we're going to talk about it after that fact. And um, in both of those situations, there are many, many stories, far more stories than I can possibly cover in just two episodes. But I'm, I'm going to skim through and give you an overview. Um, and that overview in both of those cases should help you to understand things like the Middle Passage, why it was so important, why it was so absolutely terrible. Um, the struggle for the American civil rights move, uh, during the American civil rights movement and some of the, the awful ways in which uh, people manifested the worst parts of human nature on the, the side of you know, resisting true equality for individuals. So we're going to look at those, those facets and I'm going to recount to you some of that history with the purpose of helping you to understand why we must confront this together and be able to discuss it together as i said in the last episode again i'm you know just a middle-aged white guy but i think that all of us have to talk about this as one in order to put it behind us and that's really again what the purpose of these particular episodes happen to be all right i will see you next time mm-hmm.